1: Log Talk Radio. The
2: following program is brought to you by Firefly Willows LIVE.
3: Hi, my name is John Carasella and I'm your host for Convergence on Firefly Willows LIVE. Convergence is to consciousness as gravity is to the material world. In small amounts, Gravity is overwhelmed by every other fundamental force of the universe. But gravity has something nothing else has. It's cumulative. The more matter you collect, the more gravity you get, until it becomes the most powerful force of the material world. I think convergence is like that, too. Only in this case, we're working with truth. The more truth we collect, the more convergence we experience. Connections relationships, resonance of ideas and concepts, science and mysticism. Lately, deep truths just seem to be coming together, even as many of the illusions around us are falling apart. As within, so without. As above, so below. I know I'm feeling it, and I'll bet you are too. For the next 90 minutes, We'll be exploring concepts and topics that in some way or another bring us around to a deeper truth. Join me and my guests for this week's experience of convergence. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carousella, and with me for our weekly roundtable are my co-hosts, Deb Carousella. Good morning. Hi, C. Lutmers. Hello. And Mildred Lynn McDonald.
0: Good morning.
3: And, uh, you know, for, for this, uh, this is December, so uh, all around us is the excitement, um, the hubbub, the, the motion and, and the energy of the pop culture's interpretation of Christmas. And I thought it would be interesting to explore a little bit what those of us who are not Christians what do we make of this this hubbub? Uh how do we how do we respond to it? How does it intrude or enhance or how do we engage with it really? Because it, it's all it's pretty unavoidable.
2: True. You can't avoid it beginning before Thanksgiving.
3: Um really beginning after Halloween practically. Kind
2: of, yes. Um, for myself, I enjoy the outward display, um, partly because it ties back to my childhood, because growing up, I grew up in a a Catholic household, and you did go to Mass, and the whole Christmas tree and and the secular celebration of Christmas, as well as what might be considered a religious, spiritual celebration of of Christmas, was part of my upbringing. Mm. And so now that I don't necessarily equate the spiritual... Um, reason for this season, um, I still enjoy and connect to the trappings, the lights, the decorations, the colors, the sounds, the music, and smells. Um, pine trees. The pine trees and the cinnamon mm-hmm. and, you know, all of those things that we kind of automatically know this means Christmas. Mm-hmm. If, if you grew up in the United States in particular, because this is how we celebrate. Um, so I find it a comfort and a familiarity um, because it I really enjoy things that have continuance, that tie our present moment to the people and to things and events that have transpired across years and centuries. And so I find... I find I really enjoy that aspect of this season. Um, from a personal the way I approach my feelings of um, spiritual um, connectedness and, and observation, there's more to Christmas. There's more to this season. There's, there's all kinds of hidden messages and meanings in what we use today that have been co-opted by the yeah. Christian faith. Yeah. So it's not just Christian. Christmas is much, much more than that. And I love and appreciate those aspects of the season. And it ties us into the time of year more than it ties us into some thought of, you know, baby Jesus in a manger.
1: Mm-hmm. Which
3: and so the time of year, so, so like the, the, the essence of Yule, right? Yes. Or, and the, the snowy... Almost like the northern European Germanic yes. snow-covered right. pine trees and exactly, warm is, cozy logs burning in the fireplace
2: kind of thing. Right, which for our the descend for most of the U.S. traditions those that's where our traditions came from. Mm-hmm. The descendants of those people, and, um, and
3: so you feel connectedness to that.
2: I yes, yes.
3: And you can and you get that connectedness even though they're playing Christmas carols.
2: Yes, yes, um, because. Some of the Christmas carols are are religious based, mm-hmm. and some of them are totally secular. Mm-hmm. And um, I I enjoy both. Cool. Because it's music, and I like music. Uh,
3: all right, and it's familiar music. And
0: it's familiar yeah,
3: music from your childhood and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mildred Lynn, how about you?
0: Yeah, I loved hearing Deb talk. Deb, I could have listened. <laughs> more to your thoughts about Christmas. I was was drifting off into a Christmas card. Okay, thank you. (laughs) For myself, I don't watch TV, so I don't get bombarded with a lot of the ads saying it's Christmas time, bye, bye, bye. So that doesn't really hit me. And when I look at people putting decorations up to celebrate whatever they choose to celebrate, I look at it from a perspective of enhancement or adornment or beauty, and I enjoy that very much. I love going to Christmas parties, but then I love to go to parties to interact with my friends any time during the year. (laughs) And as you were speaking, Deb, what came to mind for me was one Christmas when I was a little girl and my parents said that we were going to give gifts to a family that was less fortunate. And I remember that Christmas being my favorite Christmas because as I gave special things to this unknown family, I felt very warm in my heart. And if someone was going to ask me what the essence of Christmas is or was at that time, that was it, and and that would be my favorite Christmas forever and ever and ever. So what did I do with that? So basically I decided that I wanted to take that feeling of warmth and of giving and live it more. And basically that's how I do Christmas. I would contribute to those who may need on any level, mind, body, spirit, emotion, and dream. So that's my Christmas.
3: Mm-hmm. So Mildred Lynn, w- mm-hmm. when you encounter the the... Uh, trappings of Christmas, uh, either in other people's homes or out in, you know, in the culture in general. Um, What does that
0: bring up for you? Nothing. Because I don't associate it with Christmas. I associate it with, look at this tree. This tree is beautiful. Oh, look at the lights on the tree. Makes it even more beautiful.
1: Ah, That's
0: as far as I go with it. It's purely on a What's that word a more aesthetic for? aesthetic level? Yes,
3: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. okay, uh, and hi see, how about you? well if you're if we talk about like the whole
4: consumerism gift giving thing, uh, what I've found, if I think back of the the evolution of my relationship to that mm. is at this point, I actually try to use this time of year to do a bit of a introspective meditation process to look at what's my relationship to things, what's my relationship to consuming, uh, and what's my attachment to thinking I want or need things. And I explore that also from how am I being impacted or affected by marketing messages and that kind of thing is what I'm feeling like I suddenly want or need. Really something I want or need or is that because I'm suddenly even Subconsciously or 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 without my being aware of it around me being bombarded by messages so I, I try to use it as an opportunity to step back and reflect on Where is that desire coming from for something? And is it something that really is of? importance and I actually have gotten to a point where I try to Avoid the consumerism aspect because I feel like it's if I do buy into that it's contributing to what I think has become a very negative consumer oriented society uh, and so I feel like if I can stay out of that then at least I'm not contributing to it
3: yeah um, but don't you know you don't want to be reinforcing uh a, a theme in the culture that you find distasteful
4: Uh, right and especially when I see things you know like the the whole Black Friday thing and the, the things that happen at places like Walmart where people become crazed and are injuring if not killing other people just to be able to buy something you know it really has made me say I'm just not even gonna be a part of that and if I do feel like I want to go get something I will make an effort and I have tried to be more conscientious about going to a local business or a small business rather than to a big store just because there's a sale for the holiday um, but I and even in the way that I when I'm asked for a Christmas list which I really don't get now but um, I've noticed the difference from I used to have a list of things that I wanted to then I started listing things that I needed so then I started thinking about and listing things that I felt other people needed instead and I actually found resistance to that um, in in my family when they would ask for a, a list over the past few years it's become a list of say charities or places that I would say make a contribution to these places if you want to make it in my name that's fine that doesn't matter but make a contribution to these places instead and there was a lot of pushback because there was this almost lack of understanding of how that could be satisfying both for me as a gift recipient as well as it was not satisfying for them because they got pleasure out of going out and shopping and buying things
1: uh. and
4: <laughs> i just don't get that i don't have that gene <laughs> i guess <laughs> um but i but i feel like i, I see so much that people put themselves under to try to deal with the crowds and to get what they think people want or getting things that they think people should have when really the people don't need it nor necessarily want it and I would rather that money go to something where it can be used in a more productive way so this whole season for me becomes more of that kind of meditative reflective process so I can look at my own relationship to consumerism and attachment to things and really see where I've come to, what my understanding of that is and how I need to continue working on that or grow in some way around that.
3: So you allow the the stimuli around you to be a sort of a a focus of meditation.
4: Right. I I let it be a catalyst for teaching or lessons to learn rather than rather than becoming negative in my thinking towards it necessarily versus let me I can't do anything about it being around me so let me find a way that I can use it to help grow or learn in my own way without necessarily having to contribute to what I think might be the negative aspects of it.
3: That's pretty interesting. So, so what we've said um, so far is we use the, we use the seasonality and the impact of popular culture to, to, uh, remember, uh, fond memories from our childhood, to enhance our aesthetic experience of our environment, because it is aesthetically quite delightful, lots of shiny, pretty things, and as a, a tool for, for self-reflection on our response to the consumerist culture and what we might change in ourselves, uh, and I, it's interesting that we we haven't really talked about the ostensible theme of Christmas. Tra- you know, as it transcends the the Christian uh, story, which is, you know, um, God so loved the world. That he brought, that that he that that he made an effort to bring more of his divinity into the world on our behalf, and I wonder, I wonder why that is.
2: Well, it didn't happen at Christmas.
3: <laughs> First oh, well, and foremost. No, okay, so there's that.
2: But I mean, <laughs> so, <you laughs> but, know. As, but
3: as a reminder of uh, of the of the the willingness of God to incarnate presence. Uh, to deepen our relationship with God. Uh, that doesn't that, that the season doesn't bring that to us. No. No, not for Deb. How about for Mildred or I see?
0: Not for me. No. Well, it, and it doesn't
4: for me. And I think it's because, as you said at the beginning, that none of us necessarily follow a Christian path uh, or tradition. Uh, but what it what it does for me though cuz I actually grew up southern baptist I mean I grew up in the tradition I understand what the season is ostensibly supposed to be about um although I fail to see that in many people because they say oh we're going to church and it's about baby jesus and then all they think about is getting the things on their christmas list <laughs> uh, but but what it does for me is it actually makes me uh and has made me want to research and delve into the origins of a lot of the symbols and a lot of the traditions that we see around this time of year. And, you know, so really everything that you were talking about comes from that sense of the traditions that grew up around the winter solstice and what's sometimes called Yule, but really it's just winter solstice if you're not of a Celtic persuasion. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) And you know and, and there you have the the birth or the rebirth of the sun S U N and it is a time when it feels quieter and it's winter when it kind of inspires us to become more hibernating and introspective and so you know I, 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 for me it does at least stimulate that process of going inward and looking at where is that spark of the divine if you want to think of the sun or the light Coming back at winter solstice, um, you know, where is that being birthed in me or in my life or in the world around me, or how can I contribute to that in the the world at large? Um, so it does stimulate that thought process for me, but it has, it, but it's not in the context of the the Christian religion or the Christian symbolism. Um, it's more the research of understanding where all of that symbolism came from and even perhaps what the reason why this time of year was chosen by the Christians way back when and how a lot of that is just a appropriation of other traditions and symbolisms, and so understanding that does give me a a greater connection and understanding of this time of year just not within the, the context or the guise of the Christian aspect
0: John you know when you're talking about does it stimulate anything, and mm. I was reflecting here, and one thing it does stimulate for me, and I didn't expect this to come to mind, it does stimulate what is the real cost of producing these goods, and is it fair? Hmm. I had never heard of Black Friday before I don't know if I live under a rock but <laughs> but I was like what is Black Friday what is it what can it be
1: <laughs> right, and, right, then, right. and then
0: I understood what it what it is so I'm very conscious that we have been brainwashed to consume 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 but we don't really understand what the real cost of that item that we choose to consume is in terms of sweat equity, in terms of the environment, in terms of many, many factors other than the joy of receiving or or whatever that's about. So I would throw out there to our listeners that maybe for their consideration – they can look at things on sale or purchasing lots of things to have a thought for what really is the cost to produce what they're holding in their hand. And with that in mind decide is this something I want to be a part of or not during the Christmas season.
3: Yeah. I I, I think it's um Yeah, that's a that's really good and and deep and somewhat disturbing. Um when you really reflect on what Black Friday is, right? Black Friday, it's called Black Friday not because of anything that it does for us, but because of its profit for the corporations. So it, it really is a completely perverted. Um, it's it's a brazen label of the perversion of the process that we've engaged in around this ostensibly holy season, and it's it is literally the opposite of what we are encouraged by the seasonality of the year to be doing, right? This this is the time of, of slowing down and deepening intimacy, uh, which has nothing to do with making money. Uh, and it has nothing to do with consuming goods. It's, it's the opposite of an I-it relationship. It's the deepening of the I-thou relationship and uh you know how did we get here it's so strange uh but uh, so um
4: and i might i might offer just to connect both what Mildred was saying as well as what you were mentioning about that idea of the the reason for the season in terms of that idea of divinity and all of that um because one thing i've started focusing on is and, and i think if people really looked and if they ask themselves, do they or the people they would be getting presents for really need more things? The answer is probably no. And the key word there, of course, is need. Um, but what I've really gravitated towards more is giving. If I give something to someone, it's usually something that is an experience rather than a thing.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
4: So it might be, you know, a gift certificate for a weekend retreat or Uh, day at the spa, or
3: or sensory deprivation tank, which you gave up. Sensory
4: deprivation tanks, (laughs) Uh, you know, or maybe something that I know they like, like it may be a day of horseback riding or something Mm -hmm. like that. But to me, that really ties into both of those things, because it doesn't have that impact like Mildred was talking about in terms of equity and um, the environment and all of that because it's an experience rather than the production of something and it also ties into that idea of reconnecting with the divinity or the holiness of the time period because having that experience theoretically can help someone to reconnect with or discover something within themselves through that experience that may deepen their own experience of living or with the world around them rather than just being a thing that they would use or put on a shelf and look at every once
2: in a while.
3: All right, Ed, so any last thoughts from you, okay.
2: Um I must say that I do enjoy Christmas. I enjoy this. I find that I do enjoy this time of year, and um, I, it's, I don't feel hypocritical about that or guilty, uh, even though I don't enjoy it and or experience it in the same manner that um, most of the rest of society or the people around me are, are enjoying it or viewing it. Uh, and I, and I, I think for all of the reasons that you guys have already um, talked about and expounded upon, um, but I think I just want to reiterate something that I said at the very beginning. It's the, the continuity, mm-hmm. the the tradition of this season and tradition in a um, I prefer to think of this in, in the benign sense of the of the tradition as opposed to the um, you know frantic hectic mm-hmm. hubbub yeah. source of the tradition yeah. and um, I find when I can encounter something as reliable as once a year this is going to come around and it, it's that touch touchstone mm. and it's the connection to all of the people and all of the times and all of the places where this has meant something yeah and i i that's what i enjoy and, and experience and want to celebrate
3: I, I think that's a really good thing you know as we as we wrap up our roundtable i think that's a really good place to go um who is there is continuity, there is history, there is hundreds and hundreds of years of people finding, d- deepening their intimacy with family and friends and with nature through, you know, with the... the uh there, Well, through, through nature, you know, what I was going to say is um, through the aesthetic adornment mm-hmm. of the natural world you know and and the warmth of a candle in the window and the you know shiny 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 things hanging on the trees and pretty wrapping paper and so on and so forth there really is um an opportunity to to deepen our relationship with with spirit uh that it, the, and the spirit that is in all of these things and and the spirit uh, of of our ancestors who have also participated in it so um, I like that a lot, Deb. Thanks for sharing that. I, I encourage our, our audience to think about all the things that we've shared um, uh, and and see how the aesthetics of the season can serve you uh, in deepening your connection. So with that, um, we're going to wrap this roundtable. Stay tuned for the rest of the show. We've got a very interesting show for you. Um, thanks to my co host Deb, Mildred, Lynn, and Hi-C, and we'll be right back. Thanks, guys.
0: You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Don. Have a good show.
2: La 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 la. <laughs> At Firefly Willows L-I-V-E, we're working hard to be your trusted source for fun and lightning and heart-centered information and community. And we're passionate about the art of transformative media, the new leading edge of communication in our highly connected, media-rich world. If you're passionate about facilitating change and you have gifts or ideas you'd like to share... Come join us, host a show, or be a guest, or connect us to an amazing speaker or teacher whose message is too good to miss. There's always room for courageous, knowledgeable changemakers, inspired artists, and new ideas. Let us know you're interested. Send an email to info at fireflywillows.com. We're Firefly Willows L-I-V-E, helping you find and shine your inner light
3: welcome back this is convergence and i'm your host john carosella for the past two months i've been sharing my experience with the phoenix both the spiritual mythical background and the physical manifestation here on the earth plane in the form of the heron and the journey that i've been encouraged to go on with the phoenix as my guide it's involved an internal process of letting go and an external process of exposing myself to some very cold water. The ocean has been calling me in, and the Pacific around here is typically between 58 and 62 degrees. So it's been an experience of full, deep, penetrating cold. At the same time, it's been an experience of uh, primordial connection. Entering the ocean, feeling the literally aching cold, feeling the heat of my body seep out and merge with the great-grandmother ocean. It's like a spiritual merging in some way. Water has a special resonance about it, and when you're surrounded by it, and when it's so cold that you can't help but pay attention to it, there's a deep and powerful connection that happens. I found that it was like I was dissolving. My personal edges were dissolving. But at the same time, my body was still an insulated, isolated thing. My skin marked a very real boundary between the water that is the sea and that very similar water that is my blood. My body was a physical construct, a vessel, into which and through which my spirit could ebb, flow, and be held. In that place of intimate contact with the ocean, I was able to flow back and forth between contained in my body and associated with my body. Well, last month I shared that two herons were at the mouth of Aptos Creek, beckoning me into the ocean. I made it halfway in, but got turned back by cold and fear. I felt very strongly that there was something more that needed to be accomplished, and I wasn't sure when I'd get another chance. but. Apparently, I didn't have long to wait. Visiting family for the Thanksgiving holiday, I had another opportunity to engage in this journey into the cold. My sister doesn't have an ocean in her backyard, but she does have a pool. As soon as I arrived, I had this notion, an an itch, really, to go into the pool. I mentioned it to her, and she warned me that it was pretty cold. Bah, I assured her, I'd been swimming in the ocean. But what I failed to realize is that a smaller body of water can both heat up and cool off much faster than the ocean, and it had been quite cold out where she lives. Well, it was after Thanksgiving dinner. Night had fallen, and the neighborhood was quiet. At around nine o'clock, I asked for a beach towel. I went outside into the backyard. It was probably about sixty degrees out. I checked the pool temperature, 53 degrees. No back porch light, no moon, just some suburban ambient light. I worked my warming breath, yoga style, to build some heat. Then I stripped off my clothes, tossed the beach towel over my head, and had to continue to build the heat. Well, I only got so far with that. It was quite chilly out, and my skin was cold. My resolve was present, but it wasn't getting any stronger. So it was time. I thought about diving in from the deep end, but something didn't feel right about that. Even though it would be quick and I'd be completely immersed, there was something about that that felt, what, not too easy, but too violent, I think. I needed a process that was going to be intimate enough To do the job one where my awareness would be present and given time to adjust to what was happening I wasn't particularly happy about this requirement for intimacy but it was not negotiable if I was going to take advantage of the opportunity I had to do what was appropriate not what was convenient so I walked with the towel over my head back down to the shallow end I dropped the towel at the side of the pool stepped onto the first step and then the second and then the third and then onto the pool floor. It was very cold. Breathing mindfully and trying to stay fully present I walked deeper into the pool up to my stomach and ribs. Very cold. I stopped with my arms and shoulders submerged but with my head above the water. It was difficult to stay Panic was asking me to turn around. Phoenix was inviting me to submerge my head. I dove. The water surrounding me was both stimulating and terrifying. Dark, cold, but very much alive with my own motion and the magic of the spirit of life. I surfaced and a deep shiver and convulsion shook me. Out! Out! My senses commanded me. Quickly, but as gracefully as I could muster, I paddled and waded my way back to the steps. I climbed out, tossed the big towel over my head, and began to breathe my warming breath. Very quickly, I was warm again. This time, I felt almost toasty warm under the big towel. Unlike my encounter with the ocean last month, this time there was no panic, no retching. There was fear, but I received it very differently this time. I knew it was there, and I knew it was useful. And I knew it was not the master. My mind was informing me of fear, but my heart was telling me that I was okay. That I would be okay. It was time to go back in. This is the step that I missed out on the last time. I was too afraid. Perhaps it was the fact that it was a swimming pool instead of the Pacific Ocean. Perhaps it was that my sister's house, warm, cozy, and protective, was only a few steps away. Perhaps it was that I'd already had this experience once before and knew that I would survive. Or maybe it was just that I'd grown enough in the interim to understand what needed to be done, and more importantly, why. I knew I would survive a second trip into the water, so the only thing that would stop me was fear. And I was being invited to face it and embrace it, accept it, and console it. Discarding fear? That's not what it was. It's not about discarding. It's about becoming intimate with fear, respecting that it is saying something, but embracing it like like a child. Fear doesn't know what we know within ourselves. It's not omniscient. When we give it all that power, we give away our own. Yes, I would be cold. But no, I would not die. I would not suffer permanent damage. I would not be crippled or in misery. I would just be cold. And there was something more to be understood. Some other gift to be uncovered and received. So I dropped the towel and walked back into the water. It felt surprisingly colder this time, but also oddly less painful at first. I walked in, immersed myself, and swam underwater the length of the pool. It was beautiful. The cold water flowing over my head, my neck and shoulders, and down my back, swirling around my arms and legs, I could feel the contours of the water so clearly and distinctly. I popped up in the deep end of the pool and shook the water from my head, breathing, breathing, trying to keep the heat flowing. Something was about to happen. I could feel it. I didn't know what, but quite suddenly the water started to feel painful. The cold was becoming very present, not as a condition of my environment, but as a message to my brain. It didn't trigger panic, which was interesting. It was more like an enlightened fear. True, clear assessment of danger. Only the pain was present, not the story that I would normally be telling myself about the pain. Buddha said, Pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. That's what it felt like. I wasn't suffering. I was simply experiencing pain. One more time, I dove under the water and offered strong strokes to propel me back to the shallow end. One, two, three strokes, and then pop! It was a very visceral and audible pop that seemed to have its epicenter around my shoulders, maybe maybe even my chest, perhaps my heart. But it resonated all through me, and I felt like some kind of shell literally popped off me, and dissipated into the water. By the time I reached the shallow end, the cold of the water was registering as pain all around my skin. It hurt to be in the water any longer. This time it wasn't out, out, out. This time it was it's time. You should leave the water now. And I quickly but confidently climbed out of the pool. No panic, just purpose. The towel once again over my head, engaging my warming breath, drying off, collecting my clothes, and heading into the house. Over the next few days, I experienced a surprising bounty of gifts from spirit. I'll share more about one of them later in the program. But for now, I think Phoenix has shown me what I needed to see to get through the gate, so to speak. It's not from the flames that the phoenix arises but from the ashes cold spent inert whatever popped off of me it was cold spent and inert and apparently in the way i'm happy to have shed it and i'm looking forward to the luminous rise that is to come we'll be right back
2: as promised we're always thinking of ways to bring you a fresh new perspective Check out this lineup of our newest shows. The Amethyst Oracle, Divination with a Queer Twist, featuring Firefly Willow's L.I.V.E. favorite, Heisey Lutmers, and his co-host, Charlie Harrington, on the second Tuesday evening each month. A Shamanic Life, hosted by John Carousella, on the first and third Tuesday evenings each month. What's Your Prescription for Balance, with Dr. Glenna Calder, the first Thursday afternoon each month. And Evolve with Robin White Turtle Lizney the third Thursday afternoon each month. Introducing our newest show the second and fourth Saturday mornings each month from beyond with Mother Daughter Psychic Mediums, Nadia Shapiro and Dr. Barbara Williams. We're excited. Give us a listen as we continue to create new and entertaining ways for you to shine your inner light. Join us at Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E.
3: Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carasella. My guest today for our spirited conversation is Faith Freed. Faith is the author of Is Your Authentic Spirituality Unleashed, published by Hay House this year, 2013. She holds a master's degree in clinical psychology and practices at the IntelliChi Wellness Center in San Francisco and Palo Alto. Her mission is to inspire and affirm free thinkers who base their beliefs and practices on what rings true, Faith, hey, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. So, um, this is uh, your authentic spirituality unleashed, and the title—that's the, the, the subtitle. The, the title is "Is." Right. Uh, and so, why did you pick why is?
5: I love is. It is as simple as it gets, and it it points to all that is, um, and it's been sort of my goal to distill things down to the simplest form. So the fact that the title of the book could be a two-letter word that means being is perfect.
3: Yeah, I like that. Yeah, it's very good.
5: <laughs> and it also stands for My Name for God. Infinite Source is for short.
3: Yeah, so, and we're going to talk a lot about that because there's things that involve a, a disco ball, and, you know, <laughs> <laughs> we can't wait to get into there. Um, now, you actually, you have... Two master's degrees. Right? You have the, the master's degree in clinical psychology, but you also have a master's degree in something else.
5: Uh, right, in advertising, actually, there, it's possible to get a master's degree in advertising.
3: Okay, so <laughs> I, it, it might seem like it's a little off topic, but I actually want to explore that a little bit. What what was that like? Uh, what What is a master's degree in advertising
1: about?
5: You know, I I went to the George Washington University and was an English major, and wasn't sure how I would make a living as a writer. And it dawned on me that I did very well in my advertising class, and it might be fun to write headlines. So I had knew nothing about really getting into that industry. And come to find out, I would have done better just to get a portfolio developed with samples of ads that I came up with. But not knowing that, I enrolled in the only master's program in advertising that I could find, which was at the University of Texas. At Austin. And then I found out that really what I needed was a portfolio. So I ended up doing that in tandem and spent a a few years at that. And then I embarked on an advertising career as a copywriter out here in Northern California.
3: Mm -hmm. And what did you learn from the advertising, from your experience in advertising?
5: You know, it's funny. I, I think that that was what I consider to be the problem. And then my later career in psychotherapy is what I consider to be the solution. Because what I've found in the advertising world is that there was a lot of madness, a A lot lot of of crazy. Yes.
3: Okay. And so let's define madness for a moment.
5: Okay. Well, in that context, um, you know, I'm not speaking clinically, although I think that most people, (laughs) although you
2: might be, (laughs) I,
5: I do think that a lot of people that I worked with and for, were diagnosable, and I certainly had um, my share of pathology during that period of time. You know, I say that lightly, but things like neuroses, anxiety, obsessive-compulsive, and really that culture breeds a kind of madness. Mm -hmm. You, You have to really be committed to things like winning awards for your creativity above all else, um, there's usually some kind of disparity between staying true to your art and pleasing the people that you're working for. Yeah. And then there's always the consumer and, you know, reconciling your integrity with what you're, how you're selling and what you're selling with what is in their best interest. All of that is, you know, a premise for, maybe a difficult situation, and then you add to that the fact that people are normally hired in that industry for their talent, not for their ability to manage people and relate well and cultivate other talent. So it it was just, um, it was a recipe for a lot of craziness, Mm. and I was a part of it.
3: Well, it strikes me um, as deliciously ironic um, and poignant that in your book, you you write when we answer to illusion instead of truth we can't honor the full spectrum of human experience uh and the advertising business seems to be answering calling us compelling us to answer to illusion
5: yeah i agree with that you, you say yeah definitely
3: and so so it really is a a place that cultivates um cultivates illusion and cultivates the ensnaring of us in illusion.
5: Mm -hmm. Right.
3: So probably not a good place to be for mental health.
5: Right. And I think one of the aspects that was toxic for me was the fact that I was very externally um, motivated and my happiness and my value were dictated by others Hmm. universally. So Hmm. it was if my creative director likes my headline, then I'm a rock star, and if he doesn't, then I'm nothing. I'm nobody. You know. I mean, it, well, that's very extreme. Hmm. But the culture kind of um, lended itself to that kind of, I think, um, self-criticism.
3: Yeah. Well, because it's pretty, it's pretty illusionary.
5: Well, right, right. I and mean, um,
3: so much of it is so much of it is not grounded yeah uh, that naturally the feedback loops are going to be also highly eccentric uh orbits and very ungrounded mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so pretty challenging
5: <laughs> right well so why did they... you go
3: so why did you, why, what how did you end up there
5: <laughs> you know um how did I end up there i you mean because it isn't necessarily aligned with my values and who i am yeah yeah
3: <laughs> <laughs> in fact in fact take us back take us back to your childhood you had a conversation with your grandmother when you were uh, just a wee lass.
5: <laughs> right. Well, my mother was a Christian, mm-hmm. and she was pretty true to going to church every Sunday and very involved in the choir. I fortunately grew up in a musical Christian church. It was um, it was congregational. Mm-hmm. And so I had that influence, but my dad was an atheist. And so at being very close with my father and you know, really respecting him. I then it was natural for me to question religion. And I always had sort of had one foot in and one foot out. Um, and I do remember saying to my grandmother, uh, his mother at one point that I wasn't sure how we could know that the Bible wasn't fiction right? or how, we, or how right. we knew for sure that the, that whoever it is that wrote the Bible, um, you know, that wasn't doing it just to become a successful author. So she just said to me that I was in the single digits. it's
3: <laughs> pretty young, Definitely. pretty precocious Com- commentary. Yeah.
5: <laughs> right. And that was her point was just, you know, you're awfully young to be asking that. And then she didn't comment further, which I love about my grandmother. <laughs> Quite brilliant. And that is another way in which I was prompted to keep asking questions, you uh-huh. know, um, nobody was really giving me the answers. I was on a quest and determined to figure out what made sense to me because nothing that I was seeing or that was being served up really was anything I could swallow 100%. What,
3: what parts of it were, were you, do you remember? Like what made you dyspeptic? What, what made you uncomfortable about the things that you were consuming?
5: I think there's a... There was a hypocrisy that was really obvious to me, even though I went to a a lovely church filled with lovely, lovely people. I could just see that they were human. I remember the minister getting angry at us one time because we were messing around in the pews, which we shouldn't have done, I guess, but we were kids. And to see somebody that was holy kind of lose their temper in front of a bunch of people was instructive. You know, it's just, it says okay, no matter what our titles are, no matter how religious we might be, we're, we're all just human, mm. just like those people who wrote the Bible. Mm-hmm. They're just people. Right. right. So uh, being aware of that. And then also, I, I wasn't a fan of the inaccessibility of the language that was used a lot in sermons in terms of, you know, this kind of um, arcane way of speaking. It just, it didn't feel relevant. I just thought, why don't people speak plainly so that the message carries weight rather than making us kind of decipher what it is that is being said here? So I didn't like that so much. And that that
3: clearly stuck with you because one of the things that I um, was, uh, I would say not just delighted but stunned by in reading your book is how clear it is. The clarity of the language you use, the accessibility of the language you use to describe your perspective on, on, on the divine, which is not an easy terrain to cover, uh, is just spectacular. It's really cool. So, you know, my compliments to you for, for, at least from my perspective, a really well executed, clear, uh, expression of your experience.
5: Thank you. That means a lot to me. It really was one of the, the things that I set out to do.
3: Actually, so I was going to ask you, why did you write the book? Who, who was it for?
5: The book, I, I did write the book almost in reaction to not liking what was out there. The convoluted nature of spiritual texts and some of it, you know, is just, Real. I mean, they may be put in different languages or something that's hard to understand, but a lot of it is, um, it almost feels intentionally obtuse. Mm. And so I wanted to do the opposite. I really just wanted to lay it out there in the plainest way possible so that a child can understand it. And also in a real way, in a conversational way. So Mm. it wasn't formalized. Um,
3: It's very fun to read. It is fun to read.
5: Good, because I think that, you know, sometimes we take these things too seriously, and the sacred...
3: (laughs) It's pretty clear that, ladies and gentlemen, Faith knows how to have fun with her spirituality. So pick up the book and (laughs) check it out.
5: (laughs) Thank you. But you asked me something else, which I'm losing track of now.
1: Who did you write the book
5: for? Okay. So I wrote the book really for mavericks like me, Mm -hmm. people who go their own way, for misfits or marginalized. People who have been excluded from traditional religions for reasons that aren't in my opinion fair or valid, mm-hmm. and then um, for the millennials, for the for the kids today, for the kids. you know, for generation now, because I look around and I think, if this stuff was irrelevant to me, it sure, sure is going to be irrelevant to the kids today. Yeah, <laughs> Holy cow, right? Yeah. And they're already inclined to do, I think, what maybe my generation, Generation X, um, we, we sort of champion this spiritual eclecticism mm-hmm. where we just sample the buffet and we do what works. Mm-hmm. So a little bit of yoga, a little bit of chanting, a little bit of meditation, a little bit of spiritual scripture, some Christmas, whatever it is, you know, right, right. Uh, and... I think that that generation now, or you might say why, is inclined to do that. And I want to support them because it can feel like you're out there without a rudder. So the book is just one anchor for people to kind of um, to feel like they're not the only ones out there kind of figuring it out and doing it on their own. And
3: you actually in the book you have uh, at the end of each chapter, you have an anchor for each conceptual um, I guess chunk or or, or uh, morsel. Yeah. And, and did you, you do it intentionally for uh, because it's a kind of a um, do-it-yourself, roll-your-own environment? It, it, I mean, do you feel like that? What is this? What? Why the anchor? Why did you choose to have an anchor in each section like that?
5: Maybe it's because I was a writer in advertising and I was so used to headlines. But I think that again. One of my intentions was to simplify and distill. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted people to have a quick grab. So if you read a chapter and you think there was some cool stuff in there, I I, I felt inspired, but what's the takeaway? It takes away the work of having to weed through it and find out what you highlighted, if you hopefully something hit home and to just really look at that quick yeah. phrase.
3: Yeah, well, and this is where your advertising background actually did pay off big. I mean, I, I, I really—I'm going to say this again—the clarity, the absorbability in this in this work um, your, is your authentic spirituality unleashed is just—it's great, um, and I think it it speaks. To, I think it does speak to your training in advertising because of the clarity of language and. I'm a big fan, and I, and I have huge respect for the power of words, accurately, uh, precisely, impeccably chosen. And you know, that's—I I get the sense that you brought that awareness, consciously or unconsciously, to this work. I, I would share a little bit about that.
5: Well, uh, thank you You're for welcome. your generous, generous comments, and. I feel like I could have edited that book ongoing forever. A writer comes to a place where you have to stop. And so when I read it now, I think I would change that word and I could have said this.
1: Mm -hmm.
5: But I did regard it as a work of art. I love the English language. I love words. I consider myself a real writer. And I've met writers who write books so that they can do interviews like this. And so that they can go on speaking tours and talk about things that are unrelated to their book. And no judgment, but that's not me. You know, I actually wanted to put forth a product that I felt, I shouldn't even say product, that sounds bad, but but to put forth a gift that is, is uh, as artistic and creative as I can make it. So that piece of it was important to me, to pay attention, you know, to... to Trim the fat and just deliver the best that I could in a way that was palatable and pleasurable.
3: And how do you feel about it?
5: Well, I think it's hard not to evaluate it, you know, uh, critique it. Are
3: you you going to tell me that you're critical of your book?
5: (laughs) I can't read it without that critical eye. It's hard for me to read it without wanting to be the editor
1: again <laughs> and to do
5: another rewrite. It really is. And I,
1: yeah.
5: I have trouble stopping. And I think that's because, you know, life is fluid. It's ongoing and everything is a process. And the book would have been an ongoing process if I had not had some deadlines. Mm,
3: nothing like a deadline. <laughs> <laughs> and you know those pretty well, I imagine. Yes, I yeah, do. That's good. That's yep. good. Um, you know, there's there's uh, there's something about the clarity of the writing that complements something that you said that was one of the purposes, uh, and so and a point you make in the book, uh, and it relates back to your experience of the the preacher um, getting angry and losing his temper, and that is that we don't need a middleman. Right. And if the if the language is clear, if the guidance is clear and the coaching toward connecting with the divine is clear. That's really kinda all you need.
5: Right. You don't even need the book.
3: You don't even need the book.
5: Right. Yes, yeah, that's right. It's that easy. I think that that's a great point. And that is that is the point. You know, we don't need permission we don't need rules we don't need a code all we really have to do is be open and decide to connect and for people to really get that I think is important I mean I want to communicate that you need nothing you don't need a place you don't need an, a tool you don't need a person and you don't need a book you just need to want to experience Experience the divine.
3: Well, I think one of the things that—well um, said, by the way. Um, I, I think one of the things that books like yours highlight is tools and techniques for for addressing oneself to the divine through a practice of self-awareness. Right? And it isn't about are you following rules. It's about Knowing yourself well enough to to figure out how to be open.
5: hmm hmm right. And valuing yourself enough to believe that you can. And, you know, it's recognizing the God or goddess or both within, you know, to realize that, that, it, that you know, we all have sort of equal, equal opportunity to experience Inner divinity and a connection with with um, that source, infinite source.
3: and that we are that we're justified in doing so. We're valuable enough as beings to to have that as part of our birthright.
5: Right, right.
3: Yeah,
5: it's right there. Why not?
3: That's great. <laughs> okay, let's take a short break. And when we come back, I want to hear a little bit more about your story.
5: Okay, great. Thanks, right.
2: John. We'll be right back. We hope you're enjoying this broadcast of Firefly Willows L.I.V.E. on Blog Talk Radio. For information on Firefly Willows, please explore our website, fireflywillows.com, or like us on Facebook.
3: Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carousella. And with me today is Faith Freed, author of Is Your Authentic Spirituality Unleashed? Now, uh, Faith, a lot of your book, well, your, your book opens up with um, your definition of the divine. Mm-hmm. And it's a holy disco ball model. Right? <laughs> <laughs> the, the architecture that you use is, the, is a holy disco ball. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about that, please.
5: <laughs> I think, again, this is um, a little rebellious on my part to illustrate that an object is sacred if we make it so. So there are certain things in our culture and from traditions that are depicted and revered and maybe are, have become holy for, because somebody deemed it so. And I'm sort of saying, hey, look, you know what? what, what works for you? Whatever gets you there is what to use or what to look to. Um, for me, I like the disco ball because it symbolizes celebration and to me, that's the ultimate way to Celebrate worship. good times, come on. Favorite childhood song. Um, <laughs> I won't lie. But uh, so, yeah, it's the party of life, right? Which is, I think it's our job to enjoy life. And the disco ball is, you know, it has other symbolic meaning in the sense that it's, it's like a rotating globe, like Earth and so forth. But... Um, I divide it into four quadrants to sort of um, capture my system. I don't know if you want me to explain what those are, but... Well,
3: at least, at least introduce it.
5: Yeah. But, you know, so this, the disco ball is divided into self and source, and each of those has an ineffable aspect and an incarnate aspect. So basically, we are mirrors of infinite source in that way. And the way that I conceive of it, or at least the way that it helps me to sort of touch into my spirituality, is to consider that we have the body-mind, which is our physical expression, and then we have our divine aspect, which would be what I call the inspired self. But it can be called anything, you know, inner Mm -hmm. wisdom, inner truth. Um, And then you could say higher self. And then I conceive of the divine as having also an aspect that we can't see, but that we know, which would be called infinite source. And then what I f- feel is the physical embodiment of infinite source is nature, what I call incarnate source. Mm-hmm. So those are the four aspects that I um, sort of arrived at so that I could make sure I'm hitting all the bases that I want to cover when I'm um, in spirituality mood which is hopefully all the time
3: right and so in the book there's a there's a lot of uh really beautiful um ways that you use these these four quadrants as touchstones for describing sort of like the principles that you um encourage people to explore um can you share some of those some like what and they all and they're all is right there they all start with is or they're all abbreviated IS. So right. give, us a, give us two or three that, um, I know and like one of them is um, intention, surrender. surrender.
5: Intention, surrender. Okay, so the chapter um, intention, surrender is dealing with basically the law of attraction uh, and also the idea of surrender. It points to the fact that we are co-creating all the time with the divine, and we're collaborating. It's 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 a fun process. So if I were going to consider how each aspect of the disco ball pertains to intention surrender, I have examples like, um, okay, let's take infinite source. How does that pertain to intention surrender? Well, infinite source is the surrender piece. This is where we get to let go and let God, as they say. Or mm-hmm. this is where we are... Um, allowing the universe to conspire in our favor.
3: You know, i got to read this quote. This is, this quote really caught me. From Julia Cameron, the artist's way. The universe falls in with worthy plans, and most especially with festive and expansive ones. Uh, festive and expansive plans. So why does Infinite Source... Falling with festive plants.
5: Well, as I said before, I feel like a viable form of worship is to have a great time. Whether that is dancing or singing or communing with other people. Basically, it is to enjoy life.
3: Is that hedonism? Um,
5: no, because I don't think it's taken to an extreme. You know, I think it's, maybe it is hedonism, in a healthy sense.
3: In a balanced way.
5: Yeah. Yeah.
3: Right.
5: I mean, it's not anything about being excessive, but it's just, it's more an attitude um, and the intention to enjoy and that could be doing something really mundane. I mean, if, if say you're taking a walk, if you set the intention to enjoy yourself, you're going to have a different experience than if you're doing it because you, your doctor told you to.
3: And you talked about that as um the highest form of gratitude.
5: Being in joy. Yeah. 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 I think that is it is true it's it's a way to give thanks. To me it's you know gratitude in action. When we can appreciate what we have this gift and enjoy it to the fullest. It feels like we are using our guests, we're we're soaking it up.
3: Mm. And you have a three-letter acronym for uh, NAC.
5: Oh, yeah. Notice, appreciate, celebrate. Right. So it's just, you know, noticing even just in this moment that I feel healthy, that I feel, you know, open and warm and happy to have you in my home and surrounded by beauty and, um, you know, just aware of the time of day and the comforts Uh, that are afforded to us here, you know, it's just, in any moment, we can, we can choose to go to that place of noticing, noticing everything is okay, all is well, and appreciating it, you know, taking a moment to take it in, and, and then take it to the next level, celebrate, you know, I mean, why not just, um, even, now,
3: yeah. So so, why not? Here's the, this is this is an important question. Like, if the universe conspires to support us in um, festive and expansive experiences, why aren't we doing it? What's going on there? How do we get here?
5: You know, right? Yeah, it's an interesting question. The, the how do we get here? Um, have we forgotten how to play? I think that. Children have the right idea. They tend to take things lightly and like to, you know, do silly things and experiment and be in wonder and awe all the time. And so, if we can take a lesson from them, we can, you know, we can be dazzled more easily. And the world can certainly bring you down if you let it. So it's sort of a, we're called to rise above.
3: What brings us down i mean how do we how, is it just the you know, ancestral dysfunction passed down you know generation after generation is it the the cultural mores that we are increasingly um, bringing into focus and discarding and like i mean it feels like it feels like we're going through a big change mm-hmm. and books like yours targeted at the at the millennials are a part of that change. What are we shedding
5: well the layers of all of the stuff that we've accumulated that no longer serve us. So, did, as, it,
3: did it ever serve
5: us? You know, I mean, I don't know. That was stuff we went through, right? That it was
1: we, stuff we went through, We sure.
5: Maybe we had to, I don't know, but we did. So dealing with what is, um, it, actually dealing with what is really would bring us into the present moment. So we don't too much have to contemplate how it is that we got here, but... How do we transcend now? How do we elevate the vibration now so that we're not too mired in the past? Hmm. I mean, stuff happened, you know? Yeah. But yeah. why are we looking back? So
3: what do we do instead? So let's not look back. Let's, but we're also, I mean, are we looking forward or are we being in the moment?
5: You know, it's interesting. There's that phrase in the book, um, the, the magic is in the moment. The The mystery. mystery. What is my
3: quote? The magic is in the moment.
5: (laughs) The mystery mystery
3: is in the next. next. So I actually love that. Magic is in the moment. The mystery is in the next.
5: Mm Mhm. Yeah. So it's it's allowing ourselves to hold both the the hope and the promise and the potential of the future moment while we embrace the now. So I think you can do both, and I would give a little more weight to the now. Yeah. So it's like kind of you know where you're going. So you have your target or your destination in mind, but what's important is the baby step that you're on right now. Yeah, and I,
3: I think the uh, you know you talked about being on vacation and planning your next vacation, right? And that seems like such an absurd notion, but I think we do do that. We miss the miss the opportunity to to really be in communion and in celebration with what we're experiencing now, because we're always we've been trained, I guess, to to think and plan for tomorrow.
1: Right. Yeah, I agree. Mm.
3: Well, we could use a little work on that. Uh, I think, <laughs> I mean, and I think, the, I think the celebration part of, you know, I think you, you bring that in often enough in the book um, that it seems like it's a really important aspect of the success, what you feel like is a successful way to commune with the divine.
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was one of my criticisms of myself, was that I said celebrate probably too many times, but maybe it was a point that needed making again uh, yeah, and again. Again and again and
3: again. Yeah. I, think that's, I think that's true. And so one of the things that, that uh, has me curious is what process you went through to discover this path from the place where you were. Because you were free and rambunctious and precocious as a child then you went into advertising into the madness and somehow you got out <laughs> you escaped the madhouse
2: yeah what
5: yeah. was that
3: what what was the process and the trigger that brought you out
5: i think that i hit my own rock bottom in a sense i was pretty miserable i mean I, you know i mean i guess i had a nice life in a sense too if you're comparing it to what could have been the case, but I mentally, I was really wrapped up in the wrong headspace. And, you know, I mean, working all kinds of crazy hours, just um, letting my life be dictated by the whims of somebody else, you know, it just wasn't, it wasn't a good place to be. And uh, not to be cliche, but honestly, when my first son was born, suddenly it hit me what matters. And that was a huge wake-up call. Hmm. So it was at that point that I realized I had a little bit of time to contemplate what hadn't been working and why I was why I was a part of that madness, you know, and mad myself in a way. Why were you? I, I well, you know, I sort of feel like what happens to people, and I, certainly what happened to me, is that I think that I had that innocence and that... Um, Sort of divinity that was shining through very brightly as a child, and then I let the cultural standards and expectations and judgments kind of mold who I was. I mean, I think I started to make choices not so much directed from my inspired self as I was making them to please others, um, right? Or yeah. Now, so this is this
3: is actually where. Um the one part of, of your work, um, it, it's, it, I won't say it, it's, uh, I don't want to challenge it um, so much as I want to shed some light here. You, you talk about, and this is not uncommon um, in works like this, you talk about trusting your feelings, trusting your gut, trusting your heart. There's two, there's two parts of this that, um, that I think are challenging. One is that you know when you are as we are humans in relationship with others, sometimes our gut and our heart tell us to be of service to someone else, uh, and we want to be in relationship with them in a way that brings them happiness and that might not be the right thing for us. But our heart kind of wants us there anyway. And the other part that I'm curious about is the wild, naughty, unrestrained gut and heart that that coach us out into the into rambunctious land. Mm. And, you know, can we always trust our feelings?
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Or... Or what do we do with our feelings? How do we bring discernment into that scope?
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah, good questions. I think discernment is the key. What What you said is the key, really, is um, the balance between the the heart and the head. So our culture has become very cognitively driven, mm. very mental. And that has been, for a while now, the um, the pervading kind of um, slant to things. And so this is more to bring the pendulum into balance rather than to necessarily swing it the other way. Hmm. So true, if you're only leading with your feelings and you're only leading with your heart and you aren't using discernment, then you can get yourself into a lot of trouble. But I think I do put more emphasis on feelings than on thought, because it's gone so far the other way that I want to uh, be part of the solution to bring in it back. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you you don't want to necessarily do whatever you feel because that is maybe not going to serve you. You have to bring in reason.
3: Y- yeah. Well, you know, and the other thing, you know, something that dawned on me last year at this time, and I actually made it a New Year's resolution uh, related to it, was um, just how much training I have in thinking. You know, I'm a college-educated guy, engineering, uh, very disciplined, complex, analytical, architectural mind space that has tremendous potency in thinking and and lots of years of training in thinking. And I realized that if I had that kind of training in my capacity to feel, the kind of competence in my capacity to feel, well, that would be a totally different thing. That would be, I would be, it would be amazing, actually, to be that competent, in feeling, as I have been trained to be in thinking, and you know, so there's a lot. There's a lot of room. I think. I guess what I'm saying is there's a lot of room for expansion in our in our uh, facility with feeling.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: Mm-hmm. Well, you're halfway there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I,
3: well, actually, it turns out I thought it was. I thought I was halfway there. It's like, well, I got the thinking thing mastered. Now I'll get the feeling thing mastered. It's only, it's only 50% more to do. Right? <laughs> and then I realized that it's not just two linear axes. It's actually a full matrix of thinking and feeling and thinking about feeling and feeling how I think.
1: Yeah.
3: Like, and, and the dimensionality of that is exponential.
1: Yeah.
3: And uh, at moments, it, it, uh, I'm awestruck by the potential capacity to expand my awareness simply by integrating my feeling and my thinking
5: yeah yeah do it do yeah. us all a favor please, <laughs> john we need that you know and it is there's something to be said about the masculine ba- feminine balance too but um if you go to the other extreme and you're all about feeling and you're not thinking well then you're gonna get in, you know in trouble because you can't pay your bills and you can't to take care of a household or whatever it is, right? So um, I don't think that necessarily going all the way the other way is, is great, but I do think that um, you're right. When you engage both, the thinking and the feeling it is so dynamic. It's so fascinating, and that's why I love psychology. It uh-huh. really incorporates both.
3: Uh, that, yeah, that that makes sense. I always think of psychology as being an analytical lens on human behavior
1: mm-hmm.
3: yeah. um, without a without the without the feeling part, but I guess maybe that's changed since Freud
5: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean it, it would it, I guess it,
3: I'm dating myself there right
5: <laughs> <laughs> I mean it depends on kind of what school of psychotherapy which lens you're viewing it through, but um, I could tell you that neuroses really has more to do with. Thinking yourself in circles than it does with kind of um, anything having to do with feelings mm-hmm. so a lot of times when I see somebody who is struggling because they can't figure something out or because they're triple thinking a problem if, if I can guide them to their gut or to their heart just get them embodied and get them to listen to the wisdom of their body all of a sudden, it is total clarity.
3: Mm, yeah, uh, and you actually talk about that. Um, in order to heal, you have to feel.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, tell, tell us a little bit more about that.
5: Well, that has to do with going through a problem rather than going around it. A lot of people want to, they, they just want a remedy. You know, They want an answer. And what happens is I think that we have to Feel through the pain to get to the other side.
3: Yeah, I, you know, I just let me. I want to say shout out to that because <laughs> um, you running away from pain, numbing the pain, guaranteed to not get you to the place of healing.
1: Mm-hmm. Right.
3: You really have to allow the the pain to communicate everything that it has to communicate to you.
5: You're pretty good at feeling. It sounds like John.
3: Well, I'm getting better, <laughs> and, and and you know it's and it's not um, you know I started with trepidation, right? It's hard to do. It's hard to feel pain. Um, and and one of the reasons I think one of the reasons pain is as attenuating as it is, as demanding of our attention as it is, is because a lot of times that's the only way we would be drawn to the awareness of that circumstance.
5: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And if you get more in touch with your feelings, you may not have to then take it to that extreme. I mean, some people just they aren't tuned in enough to get the subtle hints. Right. (laughs) Right? Exhibit A. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if you're feeling tired, you can take a nap. So that would be, you know, uh, dealing with a small symptom. A I want hint, you
3: to know that I took a nap yesterday.
5: I am so glad.
3: <laughs> you said, I dare you. And I was like, I'm going to go take a
5: nap right now. It's a lost art, you know. But, um, but you know, if you ignore that impulse over and over and over and then you lose sleep and you, then, uh, you know, you're going to get, you're going to probably be hit by some major illness or you something. You have
3: a scar, I believe, over your eye <laughs> from not paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> Your Hawaii story?
5: Yeah, that's so true. I did. I ignored my um, inner wisdom when I was really called to get out of the water, having been boogie boarding for four hours, which isn't a good idea anyway. And, <laughs> you know, I stayed in because my sister was coming and she said, well, actually, I changed I, should, I changed the identity of the person in the um, book to protect the innocent, but, <laughs> but it really was her. She won't mind. Yeah. And I stayed in and then I got just pummeled and really, I mean, my eye had to get irrigated and the whole thing and I got stitches and that, you know, I just remember like having this disgusting deformity, you know, deformity, (laughs) I mean, just like the swollen eyeball on the way home in the car thinking it's because I didn't listen Mm. because I didn't listen. Every, every impulse in my, in my body was screaming, get out, you are done. And I just, motored through, I thought that I could, you know, power on, but you don't want to mess with um, bigger powers.
3: Yeah. And, and that's, <laughs> yeah. We'll talk about that in a second. So feeling requires connection to the body and clear connection to the body kind of requires or, or both requires and encourages a healthy body. And you quoted Gandhi which is a cool quote from Gandhi. I can't imagine that this is what he said, but I thought it was awesome. Our passion for exercise should become so strong that we could not bring ourselves to dispense with it on any account. This is Gandhi saying, exercise is your highest priority. What do you make of that?
5: Love it. Love it. I think that sometimes... my intention with including that quote was really to connect the dots for people. We have these notions that certain things are not spiritual. And I was making the case for tend the temple. As I say, tend the temple, care about your body, care about your health and your fitness. And is that a spiritual endeavor? Absolutely. And so Quoting Gandhi just speaks to that. It's like, look, he's a wise guy. Yeah, he's a pretty
3: wise and spiritual guy. And he's <laughs> saying, get your exercise and don't cut it out of your routine.
5: Exactly. And I tell people this in, in psychotherapy as far as uh, elevating mood and and great self-care and, and so forth. You know, it's the body and mind, they work together and they're connected. And so to get out there... For that reason is important. I mean, mental health, but physical health too. And then you tend to, I mean, do things like breathe,
1: which right. right.
5: I know you're a big fan of. No,
1: I love
3: breathing. <laughs> <laughs> In more ways I than that sounds.
5: <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I've heard you speak about breath and the, and the power of breath, um, but it's important to all of us. And, and you might even be inclined to get out there in nature with your exercise and mm-hmm. then you it's touching into something divine in that sense as well. So, um, yeah, just getting away from the notion that there's anything what uh, conceited or um, sort of selfish about making it a priority to get exercise every day. I think it should be a priority for everyone.
3: And, you know, the irony of it is that as natural, wild beings, we got exercise all the time.
1: Mm-hmm. It
3: wasn't something that you could cut out of your day because you were living outside. You were living by walking. You were living by climbing trees and chasing things around and having, you know, basically having recess all day. <laughs> all right. So um, that we have sort of isolated exercise into this, this uh, box where we call it an activity instead of having it be a fundamental harmonic in our lives, considering how much of our bodies require and what they get out of exercise, it seems like it's just, again, what a disconnect.
5: Mm-hmm. I totally agree. I agree. And I think it is also a form of worship when we exercise. Not mm-hmm. just yoga, although I'm a big fan of yoga, but anything. I mean walking, lifting weights, whatever it is, swimming, is a form of worship because it is appreciating the instrument, you know, all that our bodies can do. It's pretty amazing. Making the most of it, you know, really utilizing it to the fullest.
3: Yeah, yeah. Appreciating the instrument. We, mm-hmm. we were all gifted with um, high attunement instruments, really sophisticated gear. Right, And uh, we can get a lot out of that gear if it's kept in shape
5: That's right, that's right, and it feels great too
3: and I know, oh, by the way, it feels great too, so I mean
5: right, you get the bonus of endorphins in addition to all the other benefits, so it's it's kind of a no brainer I mean it serves yeah. us in so many ways yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I believe it is a spiritual practice
3: and and being out in nature. Is another spiritual practice for sure uh, you know the uh, moving your body going for a hike, I love to hike I love to hike um, because the the my body motion and you know the the way the the natural world washes over and through my physicality, my spirit my chi uh it's like it's like heaven. Yeah. You know this. You you talked about you know having a great. Um, how did you describe it? That you know you need a great place to party.
5: <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> and,
3: and we have one. Cause, you know the planet is awesome.
5: Yeah, the ultimate playground.
3: It's the ultimate playground.
5: Yeah, yeah, for sure. It is. I'm glad you're out there, in it.
3: Everybody. Everybody can. You can get so much out of that.
5: Oh um, really, yeah, for sure. I mean. You know, I was taking a jog today and I was thinking about how, I'm not sure if I mentioned this in the book or not, but I was just jogging on the on the dirt path next to the paved trail. And I like to think of it as giving earth like scratches on the back.
3: I like that. That's you know, great. it's
5: like, yeah. just like I, I want my feet to actually touch the earth, not the concrete. Mm-hmm. And that's for health reasons, but also because I like that contact, that feeling like, we're one, and you know, my the roots of my feet kind of touch in and connect. And um, but yeah, it's kind of like that. I get, I just get that sense that that nature wants to be enjoyed, you know, and yeah. is calling us
3: yeah. we, to we, enjoy it. we we're, we're kind of uh, in my in my travels and engaging with native peoples. There's a a sense of estrangement. That nature feels from us as humans. That um, really sums up is summed up for me in the the. I think it was uh, I think it was Chief Seattle maybe who said um, the earth does not belong to us. We belong to the earth. And the way I actually understand that is that in the first clause, the earth does not belong to us it's very clear that this is not about us being owners or possessors of the the earth. But the second half of the quote is actually the other way, which is that we belong to the earth. We are intimate, and the earth misses our belongingness. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: And so when we're out in nature, acknowledging and being present to incarnate source we're actually in communion with family Mm -hmm. and the earth misses us we're interesting (laughs) right we're interesting beings and if we if we're not participating in that communion what a bummer for you know for everybody
5: yeah yeah right well said totally agree Mm. yeah and it it, we're all part of it and uh, we're animals too Yeah, we are. (laughs) All right, so we can get a little bit uh, um, separated. Yeah, we have to be careful about that. Hmm.
3: Well, we're almost out of time. Uh, Is there any last thing, thoughts you want to share? What did we not? What did we miss?
5: Well, I mean, the only thing, John, is that you you mentioned um, in your questions that you were curious about why it is that you prefer to wash your face with cold water well, yeah, yeah yeah okay just
3: a little <laughs> setup over the last the last two years i've been increasingly uh, drawn to the experience of cold water on my skin like splashing you know you wake up in the morning and the uh the tap they turn the hot water tap on and it's not there and uh and so i just started like experiencing the cold water and i'm just so into that lately i'm like i've been swimming in the ocean without a wetsuit Oh. Like uh, all the way like up to Halloween, I'm like, what is going on with me? Do you do you have some
5: insight on in that? <laughs> <laughs> I loved that question because it was the most random thing I could possibly imagine, <laughs> but it ties right into what we're talking about because I was just contemplating that, you know, why it was you said you were sort of disappointed when the water would finally warm up when you were washing your face. And what occurred to me was, was your connection with nature? Because if you were outside and it was a December day and you went to wash your face in a stream, I mean, what temperature would the water be? It would be cold. Yeah.
3: It would be real nice and cold. (laughs) Yeah.
5: So I think that's why you like it, because Mm -hmm. you're feeling, you're remembering who you really are. You're feeling that connection. Mm-hmm. Does that makes sense.
3: Yeah, it does. It does. It's, and, it, and it does. It does feel like a connection. It's, it's interesting. It feels like a connection. It doesn't feel like cold. It feels like intimacy.
5: Yeah. Well, it's it's the truth. You know, it's like remembering what it's like to really be out there with the earth, in the earth. You know, as an animal. Yes, as an animal, you're. So this, you know, I mean, we developed hot water as a creature comfort, but it's not really, it's not really the stripped down natural thing no, you're going to get no, in no. December. No, ah! definitely not. No. So I think you're going back to nature. Okay. Right. Cool.
1: <laughs>
3: but I'll, I'll, I'll keep that. All right. So, Faith, um, okay, thank you so much for a really fascinating conversation. If folks want to get to know you or your work a little bit better, how do we direct them?
5: Probably the best is just go to faithfreed.com. And people can also email me at uh, faith at faithfree.com. Okay, cool. Yeah.
3: cool. All right, Faith, thanks again.
5: Yeah, thanks, John. It was fun.
1: And we'll be right back.
3: Hi, this is John Carasola, your host for Convergence on Firefly Willows Live. I truly enjoy putting this show together for you. It's an honor and a blessing to share what I learned from my guests, co-hosts, and personal travels. If you'd like to help Contributions in any amount are gratefully received. Send a contribution via PayPal to Convergence at FireflyWillows.com. Your support means a lot to me. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support. Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carasola. So my encounter with the phoenix led me into history, into Egypt, and into the ocean and finally into my sister's 53-degree swimming pool for a good old-fashioned ice plunge, twice. And something popped, a shell of something old and confining. I felt quite good after a nice warm shower, collecting myself and feeling my skin and knowing that something had just happened, but that I was going to be fine. I slept well, but when I awoke, I realized that I must have slept wrong on my left shoulder because it was quite sore in the morning. I went home the next morning, to spend the day at East West Bookstore doing readings. As the day passed, my shoulder felt more and more uncomfortable. By evening, it was very sore. Saturday was my day for a hike. I woke, did some minor chores, favoring my shoulder a bit, but then went for a very nice hike above a nearby reservoir. Six and a half miles round trip with a seriously steep climb. I hadn't been hiking since early summer. I was worried that I'd be out of shape. So, early on in the hike, I started working on my breathing. Deeper and deeper, I explored my breath as I hiked up and up and up. It turned out that I was rarely out of breath on the hike. Rather, I discovered some new capacities in my lungs, deep and low in the front, and like a whole extra, if thinnish layer across my back. The process felt like a breakthrough, literally. I felt like I was breaking through resistance in my lungs and surrounding structures, pushing my diaphragm lower and wider, making room for my lungs to expand, stretching the intercostal muscles and connective tissue between my ribs, opening up my back, creaks and pops and stretches, little darts of pain, the good kind, the kind you feel when you know something useful is happening. The weather was perfect, not too hot sunny enough to keep me from catching chill. All the way up, and most of the way back, I felt great. But somewhere on the return, as I continued to explore my breathing spaces, my shoulder once again came into my awareness. It was mid-afternoon by the time I got down to the reservoir. I explored along the bluffs and a bit along the shore where it was accessible. But my shoulder, what was going on with my shoulder? I watched the sun set over the water bopped into town for a light dinner, and then went home. By morning, my shoulder was really sore and frozen. It felt like a classic frozen shoulder. I know what this is like because my right shoulder went through the exact same thing during my time in the crucible just prior to my departure from high tech. That time, it took me five months of acupressure therapy to finally get full, pain-free motion back. I'd even had an MRI and contemplated arthroscopic surgery. This felt exactly the same, but on my left shoulder. I've been receiving some interesting insights about my non-dominant side lately. Trying hard to understand the difference between my, my right and my left. Trying to understand why it's hard. Is it incompetence or simply fear that keeps me from going to my left? trying to understand why it's hard to have the same mastery with my left side as with my right. I had some powerful revelations about the limits of symmetry. In attempting to do something unfamiliar with my left hand, I could imagine what it was like to do it with my right, empathize with doing it righty, and then try to translate thought, feeling, and motor experience to my left side, copying, but in a mirrored way. And eventually I realized that That's like learning a foreign language. Mirrored copying is taking the wisdom and experience of my right side and handing it to my left and saying, here, this is how you do it. But the truth is, that isn't how you do it. That's how righty does it. Lefty has a different skill set, a different upbringing, a different lens in viewing the world. I think of my right arm as my sword arm, my arm of action in the world the one through which I do my work in the world. My left arm is my shield arm. I know this in part because of the way I naturally hitch my left shoulder up when I'm under stress, as if I'm hoisting a shield, preparing for a blow. It's also my beast of burden arm, the one that typically carried the weight of my work bag for 25 years, computers and magazines and all other such road warrior essentials. My left shoulder, left arm, left hand, They're not the same as my right. They are, in effect, the product of a completely different cultural experience. They were not a part of the doing circuit. They were part of the receiving circuit. Receive the blows. Receive the weight. Bearing the brunt. Trying to impose a right-hand experience on my left side would be very foreign like a foreign language. So it was necessary to engage my left side from a very different, much more organic place. If I wanted to truly leverage my left side, I had to allow it to learn as one would learn a native tongue. Organically. Invited, not coerced. What does this have to do with my frozen shoulder? Because it hurt like hell. I pretty much could not reach into my back pocket. Nor could I take off or put on my shirts without sharp pain. I had to slow everything way down just to do the basics. I struggled to wash my face, to even touch my face with my left hand. The only position that was pain-free was shield up. Arm contracted, elbow to my side, fist near my collarbone. Anything else released a searing pain, either in my arm, back, or chest and always in the shoulder joint itself. Well, my approach to my right shoulder when it was frozen was very much active. I actively sought to manipulate it and impose upon it and compel it back into health. I essentially fought with it, demanding that it cooperate with my agenda. It took me five months. Not uncommon for a frozen shoulder to get fully operational again. In fact, pretty good by most accounts. A Harvard Medical School website cites several months to two years to heal a frozen shoulder. I knew this had to be different for me. There would be no sensible reason for me to be compromised for another five months. It had to be different. My body, I was certain, was trying to tell me something, trying to show me something, trying to teach me something. It was my left side, the receiving side. Now, I've been going through significant changes in my life as key personal relationships are transforming and many other constraints around me are dissolving. It's an exciting time and I'm a passionate guy. I've been starting to rev my engines in excitement, looking forward to some dramatically widened horizons. And in my head, I've been planning and extrapolating and imagining and constructing at times at a frenzied pace. What was I being called to with this radical reduction in my capacity to move, much less begin a new adventure, a new chapter in my life? This had to be more than just an injury. I was determined to understand. I went back to the reservoir the next day and spent the afternoon in contemplation above the water. I watched the sunset and felt the pain. I tried to stretch and breathe and manipulate my shoulder. By nightfall on Sunday it had gotten worse I did some deep journey work over the next three days I reflected on the lessons i had been learning in yoga understanding the nature of pain in yoga practice has been definitely taught to me by Slata Dolgova my yoga teacher who's been a past guest on the program I remember the first time I actually got it I really understood that the front edge of the pain is where you have to stop if you don't Your body won't trust you next time and it'll stop you sooner. It'll, it'll generate that pain sooner. So there's a really powerful point of leverage of maximum return on investment at the front edge of your pain in any yoga practice. And for that matter, any physical activity. Trust your body and it will trust you. Trust your body. Okay. But then what? What I discovered is that if you stop at the front edge of the pain and really feel that pain. I mean, really feel it, really connect with it. It goes from a general alert signal to a collection of very fine, very nuanced messages about what's going on. It becomes a road map for rewiring your motion, your strength, your posture. Pretty much everything you need to know to relieve the pain and heal the impacted area is actually present within the pain itself. This process requires becoming intimate with your pain. And we are not trained to do this in our culture. We're trained to numb it, to dominate it, to move away from it. But God forbid you actually get to know it. But that's what I learned, and I fixed the problem in my hip flexor that way back in the spring. This was much worse, much more debilitating. But I suspected strongly that this training was the path forward. Now, the shoulder is the most flexible joint in the body. It has the greatest range of motion. As a result, it is structurally considered to be one of the weakest because bones and sinew have to yield to motion. You can only have so much structure if you want to retain flexibility. So my frozen shoulder was frozen in many dimensions. Very little range of movement was available without pain. I still don't really know what I did to it. Physical insult resulted in this rapidly progressing disability, but I knew that there was a way to come to understand it. But the problem with the shoulder and all that range of motion is that there is all that range of motion to be explored, and all of that range of motion had pain messages for me. This is not a condition that lends itself to aggressive alpha male active principle treatment. But then again, this was my left side my Divine Feminine, receptive principle, nonverbal side. I began with some ceremony and invited in compassionate help. One of the cards I received from the, the Brian Froud fairy deck was the Divine Feminine. It's called She of the Kruak and it was reversed. Clearly an indication that I needed to connect with the Divine Feminine. I needed to learn to receive. And in this case, What I needed to receive was the messages from the pain in my shoulder. I needed to learn to listen. I spent the better part of three days sitting or lying very quietly, moving my shoulder a millimeter at a time, encountering the front edge of the pain and absorbing the messages that it had for me, flexing, stretching, breathing into the tiny spaces and structures that were revealed with exquisite clarity through the pain. I could not go quickly because the front edge of the pain was very close. I could not move dramatically from one area to another because my range of motion was restricted to a very small orbit. I had to be patient and wait and tame my restlessness in each and every tiny movement until I could clearly hear the message that the pain was carrying. And then I could release, resolve, and rebuild. I had to be completely trustworthy to my body. I had to go slow. I had to be patient and become intimate with my shoulder and the pain it was expressing. I had to listen. For three days I practiced listening, receiving messages. It became very clear to me what a tremendous gift I had been given. I thought about reaching out for help, about asking for Reiki or calling a friend or something because it was so painful. But I realized that the very thing that was making me want to call for help was exactly what was needed for me to harvest the gift of the experience. I was impatient with my disability and resisting the need to listen to the pain. And that was the whole point. Listen. Slow down. Receive. Be willing to wait until you are clear about what is being presented to you so you can respond from a place of communion, not ego. This revelation was not just about my shoulder, but about my whole life as it was being framed for me going forward. No haste, advised spirit. No haste. All is new. You are about to engage in learning a new native tongue. Leave your plans. Leave your suppositions. Leave your Righty does it like this for a moment, and listen until you can hear, understand, and respond in communion. This, my friends, is the lesson that I learned from my pain. Three days of listening, gradually shifting and stretching and flexing, and opening myself. By the morning of the fourth day, I was able to put on my shirt, jacket, and backpack. I was able to wash my face. By the fifth day, I would barely wince. And now, I'm just happy to have the occasional reminder that listening is still a skill I need to practice. My shoulder is back to 99% full range of motion. I haven't tested it with anything like push-ups or yoga yet, but, well, maybe I'll do that right now.
1: Yep, all good. Patience,
3: pain, intimacy. Three words I wouldn't have put together before this incident. I do now. We'll be right
2: back. A personal Tarot reading can offer you insight, information, enlightenment and empowerment along your life's path. Hi-C is a professional Tarot conversationalist and ritualist with over 10 years' experience. He's available for readings in a variety of formats, including parties and events. To schedule your personal Tarot reading, contact Hi-C at by or email him at hic at fireflywillows.com.
3: Well, that's our show. Thanks for joining me. This is the season of the solstice. The dark is at its peak, and yet the sun begins its return. Take the time for reflection and respite. Enjoy the quiet company of friends and loved ones. Just a reminder that next Sunday, December 22nd, is the fourth Sunday of the month. Revolution hosts, Icy Lutner's and I will be here to offer you on-air readings, so call in if you like. December also has a bonus Sunday. We'll be here again offering you readings on December 29th as well. And if you want to sit down with me for a longer or more personal reading or healing session, I'm at East West Bookstore in Mountain View each Friday from noon till 7 p.m. Hope to see you there. In any case, have a great holiday, and we'll catch you next time.
2: Thank you for joining us. This program was brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. We hope you enjoyed the show. This is Deb Carosella. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for A Shamanic Life with John Carosella, Tuesday evening at 8 p.m.